Is this thing on? Hi, I'm back. I look, look, okay. I was gone for a minute, but this semester had me in the academic trenches, y'all. I was fighting for my life in my anatomy and physiology class. And then physics was a whole other problem. But now I'm home, home free, home free for like two other weeks or so. But I wanted to reflect on just one big change. This year, I have been honored, thank you, Jesus, with this new role on the inaugural National Environmental Youth Advisory Council. Here's what I want to do with this role. Take up the cause of the poor, be a voice for the voiceless, and make my community proud. I'm going to talk about what that means, so just ride with me, all right? Hey, my name is Osa Senegaidaha, and it has been so long that I, I really do feel the need to introduce myself. I am currently a junior at Harvard College, concentrating in environmental science and public policy while taking the prerequisite classes for medical school. I want to improve urban environmental health because of my background growing up in Hyde Park. It's a small neighborhood in Boston, Massachusetts, with a lasting industrial history going back a few centuries since it was annexed into the city of Boston in the 1800s. It's now home to a diverse population of immigrants and working class Americans who, mostly without knowing, have been burdened for generations with environmental health hazards. For many people who look like me in urban America, these concerns are so far from the mind because it's so insidious, so hidden from sight. And when you got bills to pay and the need to put food on the table, it honestly seems irrelevant. But when you ask people about it, they definitely care. They just often don't have the time, money, or political power to organize and do something about the air pollution and the chemical cleanup sites. As was said by Boston environmental leader Judith Foster, who I actually spoke with in an earlier episode on the podcast, when someone is hungry and sick and desperate, they can't see you, can't hear you, and will largely ignore you. Can you blame them? I used to think that these communities in action was a result of just not caring. But when you take a deeper look at it, it's obvious that it's either a bandwidth issue, like the fact that they don't have enough time, money, or political power, like I was saying before, or the fact that people don't know what they don't know. And in a sense, not knowing is bliss because, I mean, they don't need any more toxic stress in their life. So before we start talking about environmental health, there are many other pressing issues that need to be addressed. That means we need to address key issues like the inaccessibility of well-paying, stable jobs with good benefits. Um, that means we need to address the issue of costly, yet poor quality housing, poor health coverage, poor quality education, residential discrimination in the form of racial segregation, and an inadequate level of investment into preventative health care. I just listed six key issues. These are issues that cannot be called irrelevant. They are the underlying obstacles that are stopping climate action engagement in many of these communities where there is concentrated poverty. So that you can better understand just where I'm coming from, I'm going to talk about some research. And let me briefly explain a few psychological theories of motivation. I mean, you know, I got to talk about some health-related stuff. This is the climate doctor, no MD. Wait, wait, don't mentally clock out. This is important, trust me, because these theories explain different ways we can approach how to better 
engage people who have elevated levels of chronic issues for their mental and physical health. And I'm saying I'm going to briefly explain all of this stuff, okay? Because I recognize this can quickly become a rabbit hole. I'll try to do it in oversimplified terms so you can follow along. And honestly, for my own benefit, so I can solidify my understanding. But if I don't achieve this, I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> After all, I'm pretty sure that I need to know all of this stuff in depth for my eventual medical school entrance exams, right? So follow along and ride with me, all right? <laughs> Motivational theories all focus on, I mean, as you can probably guess, motivational theories are going to focus on how people are motivated to do things. Some theories, like the drive reductionist theory or Maslow's hierarchy of needs, are fundamentally based on the idea that humans have essential needs that have to be addressed. And so we are motivated to do something to address these needs. The drive reductionist theory specifically says that humans are driven or motivated by the need to reduce certain unfavorable biological situations. I think an easy example is how we respond to not having enough energy from food, right? Um, the initial stimulus, not having enough chemical energy in the body, puts us out of balance biologically, and it makes us hungry as a result. And the eventual behavioral response to this hunger is that we become motivated to look for food to reduce our hunger which is the result, again, of our initial unfavorable biological state. Um, and I guess without saying all those words, we get hungry because we don't have enough energy, right? And we take actions to reduce our hunger. So what does this theory mean for climate action engagement? Well, when you are told that climate change is bad, ah, the world is burning, ah, <laughs> You can have a biological imbalance of stress hormones, which makes you anxious or fearful. And then you want to take certain actions, right? Hopefully, climate actions that reduce this anxiety. But for people in poor communities, I mean, they already have a lot of anxiety for their everyday stability, safety, and future. When life consistently presents you with pressing, tangible stimuli that make you feel anxious and fearful, it's going to be hard to be motivated by extra anxiety or fear for something that's now an intangible, seemingly distant stimulus like climate change. So adding even more anxiety or fear using the scary facts of climate change is it's just not motivating. Using the drive reductionist theory is not going to get these people motivated. Also, this theory is a little simplistic and highly limited in the applications. So let's talk about more theories, right? Another theory, way more popular, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. To understand this theory, you have to understand that humans have essentially a pyramid of needs that motivate them to do certain things. And each need is a level in the pyramid. So in this pyramid, there's a hierarchical structure to them. You need to first address the lower needs, right? So you can probably imagine where I'm going with this, um, but let me make sure we're on the same page. The base of the pyramid represents the basic physiological needs, food and water. Every human needs that. Second level from the bottom is safety. Still, every human needs that. Stable, good quality housing, somewhere where they can feel safe when they go to sleep. For someone struggling in socioeconomic poverty, they are struggling with these first two levels already. It doesn't mean that they cannot think about the third or fourth levels that I'm going to talk about 
It's just that it's hard to fully consider these levels when you spend so much time trying to survive. On top of that second level is the third level, which is a sense of belonging and meaningful relationships. It is this third level that I believe is crucial and someone has to get comfortably in this level before you start to meaningfully think about working towards something as big and complex as climate action. For the sake of knowing, uh, the fourth level from the bottom is self-esteem and the fifth level is self-actualization. Okay, one last theory, which I intentionally say for last is the expectancy value theory of motivation. This theory tells us that when you believe you have a high chance of success and when you are confident that you will actually get a highly desirable reward for success, people are highly motivated. I think a really good example is like the athlete who's about to win a championship game. All of a sudden, everyone's hustling, trying to do everything they can to give 110% to get their team that championship because it's really in reach and everybody wants to get that championship. It's something that's very desirable. Okay, so for climate action, what does that mean? Well, unfortunately, the way most people learn about climate change is primarily in a way that leaves them feeling hopeless rather than hopeful that they can do something that will have a meaningful impact. Secondly, and this is a big one too, I don't think we talk about climate change the right way to someone who's struggling to pay their bills. Hear me out. Hear me out. I mean, when the electric company is threatening to cut your electricity in the dog days of summer because you've been using air conditioning too much, and then here we come as climate activists talking about use less electricity to save the planet. Like what? They'll use less electricity to save money first and foremost. And then it's just an added benefit or in fancy economic terms, a positive externality that it's good for the planet when you also use less electricity. So there is a lot to gain. Don't get me wrong. And there is a big reward for someone to do something about climate change, regardless of your background. I just don't think, if I'm being completely honest, y'all, that we make that clear for everybody, especially those who come from a lower socioeconomic background. I mean, tell me, what is the big reward for someone who is struggling to find affordable housing if we don't make it clear to them? How is going to a march and shouting, what do we want? Climate action. When do we want it? Now. Gonna pay the electricity bill or the gas bill that's due on the first of the month, or the light bill. Why do we make it clear that people can turn off lights when you're not using them, but we don't tell these people that solar energy can also decrease their electricity bill? We don't tell them that they won't have to spend so much money on healthcare costs for their child's asthma if more vehicles and facilities in their community ran on greener, less polluting energy sources. Another part of this discussion actually was introduced to me when I spoke to my mom about this. I was just talking to her about this episode that I was planning and she suggested she well, she asked me, son, why don't you ask me why don't I particularly involve myself in climate action or why am I not engaged in all this messaging? And she answered by saying that I see it as the government's problem, not mine. And I think at first glance, we could look at that and say, oh, that is evident of what is really holding us back. It's that individuals simply just don't understand how much of an impact they have in climate action and protecting our climate. 
from disastrous consequences of climate change. And yeah, you could say that, but I think that's a surface level analysis. I think if we really take time to think about what my mom is saying or other people like her might be saying when they say stuff like, oh, it's the government's problem. That's not my problem. It's a bandwidth issue. They're really suggesting that because of the fact that they have so many other things to worry about, like we've been talking about, it's easier to say that it's just the government, even though we have the potential to make up the government if we run for office and put pressure on the government. All right, look, what I'm really trying to say is we're fumbling the bag with many people because, sure, we might be using words that they can technically understand, but we're not speaking their language. The takeaway from all of this is that if the goal is to focus on how to motivate people to hop on the climate action engagement bus, I mean, we, we have to meet them where they are. Many of these people are already contributing the least amount of environmental pollutants in the form of excessive greenhouse gases. And so why do we tell them that they need to take less long showers when these people are already trying to save water the most because it saves them extra money and stress? So the climate messaging needs to change. We need the movement to take into account the expectancy value theory and show more good news in the form of one, letting people know that there's a chance of success and two, letting people know that there is an immediately valuable reward for success. And this is especially crucial for people who are at a lower socioeconomic background. Emphasis on the immediately and valuable part of what I just said. I have to be honest myself. These are two areas where I want to do better. And as a podcaster, I've had more of an opportunity to be directly active in that first area of letting people know that there is a chance of success um, way more than I've been involved in the second area of showing people that it is an immediately valuable reward. But I am happy to share that I think I have a new role where I have the chance to be a part of creating more immediate valuable reward for people in urban communities like Hyde Park, where there are several populations living among environmental hazards. The inaugural National Environmental Youth Advisory Council, or NEAC, has the opportunity to do something big. Earlier this year, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, or US EPA, publicly announced they were planning this advisory council to incorporate passionate youth voices in a meaningful position within the organization. The official grants for the NEAC says that the council members will provide independent advice and recommendations to the US EPA administrator on how to address environmental issues relating to youth communities and use their perspective to speak about how environmental harms and climate change are impacting youth communities. I just love the fact that there is direct access to the administrator as an advisor, not an employee, because it shows the EPA is being serious with their commitment to heeding the concerns and the intelligence of young people. My specific role on the council is to, quote, represent the interests of science policy communicators focused on the correlation between environmental health and the impacts from climate change. See, when I hear that statement, it makes me think about a sort of graph where the x-axis is climate change impacts and the y-axis is labeled as urban environmental health. The graph is a sloped line that starts from the top left and goes down to the right, which means that as climate change impacts go up, urban environmental health goes down. I want to use my role as a science policy communicator 
To focus our attention on the left portion of the graph, where climate change consequences ideally stay low and urban environmental health for younger people doesn't suffer too much. It's in this left portion of the graph where we have to make it clear that climate-friendly policies for more green space, regulating carbon-emitting vehicles, and minimizing airborne microparticles, yes, they do protect urban environmental health, but they also save these young people some money on healthcare costs and allow them to make the most of educational opportunities and pursuing higher education rather than sacrificing them to help their families pay bills. You know, that's just me trying to think about the expectancy value theory here. With all that being said, I have a significant amount of work cut out for me in this new role on the NIAC. It is an honor to be selected out of over a thousand applicants for one of the 16 positions on the NIAC. And so, I mean, I know God ain't put me here for no reason, so I ain't here to play. It's like if you suddenly had to drive a fancy car, you're going to drive real carefully in your new ride. At least, I hope. So for the believers in the faith out there, pray for me. And for everyone, lock in. Because we got a new ride. We got places to go. The first community poll of 2024 is here. So I just talked about how I'd like to drive a new car. Nice and slowly, you feel me? But question, if you got a new car, how would you drive it? I asked, y'all responded. Thank you. Thank you. But the internet made y'all do what it does best. You guys were unserious. There were three options. One, drive carefully. Two, drive like there's no tomorrow. And three, drive, question mark, it stays in the garage. Most people, I think it was 43% when I last saw it, chose option two. And I should have seen that coming. I just know you would act differently if you did actually have a brand new gold spray painted Dodge Challenger Hellcat right outside. And if you really do act like that with a new car, then I definitely do not want to ride with y'all. Let me know who you are so I don't step in a car with you ever in which you're driving. Because <laughs> um, I, I ain't riding with nobody who took option two. Thank you for listening to episode 17. It was a little hiatus. I know. I'm sorry again. But we got through the semester. And in the famous words of Michael Jeffrey Jordan, I'm back. <laughs> stay tuned for episode 18 i want more good news central stuff on here that's one new year's resolution for the podcast i can share and hopefully i started the year right with this one the niac is is good news y'all if you are liking the podcast please let me know and uh follow me on instagram look at the link tree link in my instagram at climate underscore doctor underscore pod and yeah all right i'm about to be out peace and god's blessings y'all